0: You don't have to be the very best draftsman in your figure drawing class. It's more about, can you tell a story? What part of this am I gonna illustrate? What part am I choosing to draw? Why am I choosing to draw that? What does it say about what's going on? What part of the story am I bringing up? What's important here? And so I think that you're always thinking about, how can I move
1: this story forward? That's the crucial thing about writing picture books, is you have to give your illustrator space to work. So your words should be limited to what the pictures can't do. And that's, I think, a big part of writing for pictures. First of all, have a visual text, something that that the illustrator can work with, and then you can't overwrite. A picture book is like a poem. Every word counts, so you've got to pick your words carefully.
2: That was illustrator Julie Downing and author Marissa Moss, two artists who for over 30 years have created beloved books for children and young adults. And on this edition of Creative Mind, we are going to turn the page and get into the process of writing and illustrating children's books. welcome to creative mind on urban nights radio i'm your host bobby brill and on each episode we are going to bring together working artists and i want to stress the working part to give you some ideas some tips for you to follow on your journey as an artist and how your career might evolve over time so for the next half hour we are trying to pack in all the behind the scenes stuff the nitty-gritty stuff and how you get paid stuff so while there's no homework Feel free to take some notes, because Julie and Marissa both have some great insights. And of course, if you want to hear more from Julie or Marissa, you can listen to these longer conversations on our Creative Mind podcast at anchor.fm slash creativemind. There, each week I talk with animators and industrial designers, concept artists, and more, so head over to anchor.fm slash creativemind and subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. So let's crack this open and get right into it. Like many of us right now, we seem to have a bit more time on our hands, so this is the perfect time to create. And children's books offer a unique opportunity in that they're short, they can be fantastical, they can be horrific, they can be cute, or even deceptively simplistic. A great outlet for the creative mind. Before an illustrator can get to work on a book, though, the book, of course, has to, well, simply be written, and that's no small feat in and of itself. But what type of book are you going to write? Is it a true story about a historical figure? Or is it fantastical like elves and monsters? Remember that literature created from the imagination is classified as fiction. Fact-based text is classified as nonfiction. Now, of course, sometimes the line between fiction and nonfiction does get a bit fuzzy. Fiction books do often contain true events and true characters, some real facts. And nonfiction books, they can be written using fiction style and fiction techniques. To begin with, author and illustrator Marissa Moss has built a career in both fiction and nonfiction. And here's a bit into her process of writing historical nonfiction literature for children and young adults. For example, with her book, Nurse, Soldier, Spy.
1: So Nurse, Soldier, Spy is the picture book about Sarah Emma Edmonds, who is one of 400 women who dressed as men. and fought in the Civil War on one side or the other. She's particularly interesting because she is the only woman who after the war, through two different acts of Congress, received a pension. So she was acknowledged as a Civil War vet and was buried in a military cemetery. So she's the only official woman's veteran and she happened to write her own memoir. So she was an absolutely fabulous source. And besides being a soldier, she was a battlefield nurse and a spy, which as you can imagine, she'd be very good at because she was a woman dressed as a man. Just as a woman for some of her missions. So the picture book version, I took one mission, the first mission she did as a spy. And that is completely true, although of course I have to invent dialogue and her thoughts. But the historical fiction, which is the young adult novel I did, is based on her memoir. And almost all of the events are true until the very end, where I changed the ending, the very last bit, for writerly reasons. And the trick with historical fiction, and actually with nonfiction as well, is that the story has to trump the history. Especially when you're writing for kids, you have to make it interesting. So whenever there's a bit of historical stuff that gets in the way, that's what I use the author's note for. Because you're doing a lot of research, you find out all these cool things that are just like little gems and you really love them, but they may not belong in the book because they slow things down.
2: So what is your book going to be about? And that's something we always struggle with. So who's the main character? Is it Someone you know, like your great 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 grandmother, or a character that you actually read about that you want to develop your own story for. There's a lot of options. And when you start to write, you start to go a lot of places in a lot of different tangents, down a lot of different paths. But with all the best creative work, it does need to be edited. And that's not just cutting things out and throwing it away, but deciding what to leave in that gets the reader to the heart of the story. Here, Marissa explains more.
1: That's the big question, and that really is, because you, for me, when I'm starting research on one of these books, I read very widely, meaning, like, for this, Nurse, Soldier, Spy, I started by reading, I I knew I was going to do something about the Civil War, but I didn't know if it was going to be a man or a woman, a girl or a boy, north or south. So I start by reading a huge amount about the Civil War, and then I narrowed it down, when I learned about all these women who were fighting the Civil War, to one of these women, and I started by looking at, I think, a dozen. And what I wanted was a woman who was... Fighting for the right reason because a lot of the women were there because their fathers were there their brothers their husbands their boyfriends So they were there as companions to someone they loved and I wanted someone who actually Thought that this was a cause she believed in and Sarah Emma Edmonds is one of the few and it's interesting because she happens to be Canadian but who totally believed that the Union should stand and that slavery was a horrible evil that shouldn't be allowed to exist so she was; she fit the bill. She had all the right reasons for me to write about her. So then once I narrowed it down to her, then I'm doing a lot of research about the battle she's in and the other soldiers because she had her own memoir that she wrote and published shortly after the... It was towards the end of the war, which was a huge bestseller at the time, which nobody knows about now, called Unsexed, um, A Soldier in the Army. And she never refers to herself as a woman. The title's the only hint. But there are also, you can read the journals of the soldiers who served with her, and the letters that they wrote on her behalf attesting to her bravery when it was time to petition Congress for her to be officially recognized as a veteran and to get a pension. So there's a ton of research that goes into it, and you end up being very, you can end up really precious about it. It's a problem. I mean, I find that you have to, for me, a historical book like this, it takes a lot longer because I have to step away from the history. Because in the end, as I said before, the story is first. And it usually takes several, several iterations before you can step away and say, okay, now the history's in my blood and bones and I don't have to think about it. I don't have to look at my notes so much. I can just write the story that needs to be told. And you have to stay true to the facts because these are books that are used in courses. If a teacher's going to use them or a librarian, and a student, they want to be able to rely on the veracity of this book. So I'm very careful about the accuracy, but at the same time, I'm writing it as a story first, which means thinking about characters, thinking about setting scenes, thinking about dialogue, thinking about drama, all the stuff that you do in any story. But then you have to shove out the historical stuff that can get in the way. You have to pick and choose the stuff that fits your story you're telling. So for Nurse Soldier Spy, I'm telling her first spy mission. So I want to talk about how she gets chosen as a spy, how she chooses to do this and what kind of courage it took, and then her resolution, what this meant for her as a person. So you basically have a narrative, emotional narrative arc. And whatever feeds that arc, you keep in. And what distracts from it, you have to take out. I tend to choose one pivotal episode. I know some authors use this strategy to tell the whole life. But in a picture book, I feel that kind of dilutes the story. And you lose a lot of narrative drive that way.
2: So now you've got a brain full of ideas and storylines. And perhaps the hardest part of writing that story is, where do I start? What's the character development? especially if it's something that's based in reality. You've got to find the voice of the character. You've got to find those real things to latch on to. And Marissa's got some ideas for you.
1: Character development is tough because when you're dealing, especially with the past, then you have to make that character accurate for the time. You can't have them saying things that they wouldn't say, and you can't have them thinking things they wouldn't think. It's called historical context. You have to really be, um, you have to kind of check your present-oriented thinking. And, kind of live in that time, live in that time zone. So when I'm doing a historical book, my outside reading, my reading for leisure, will be reading from that period, because it's part of helping me stay in character, because that's what my character will be thinking about. So if I'm doing something like in 19th century London, then I'm reading Arthur Conan Doyle. Or there's a lot of great literature, but he's actually one of the characters she meets. So that was a great character to, to read and get a sense of him as well as, be in steeped in that kind of literature, or for nurse soldier spy, I was reading a lot of nineteenth century, you know, American literature. So it basically keeps you true to what that character would be thinking about, so that you don't make that slip that's anachronistic. So it's a it's a fine line. And I have a series of historical journals where it's told from the the main character's point of view because it's a diary, and the there are characters from seventeen hundreds Boston and from Turn of the Century America from The Pioneer Girl. So for all of those books, partly I do a lot of revisions. And part of the revision is just finding the voice. It's finding a voice that's true to the character that fits the time period. Because it, that is one of the hardest parts of writing, I think. And so I might write the whole book and then rewrite it in a different voice. And it changes the personality. It's interesting, actually an interesting exercise to do. See what happens when you tilt the voice a different way. And you, can, you really make a difference. It's a totally different book. I did that for, um, for Rachel's journal, that, which was my first historical diary when she is a pioneer girl going west. And I had a hard time getting her voice right. And I read a ton of pioneer diaries. That was a lot of the research for that book. And there's a, there's a lot that you can read that's not published because I happen to live in Berkeley. And Berkeley has a fabulous library and a rare books collection in which a lot of diaries were just deposited. When the pioneers came over here, they end up in Berkeley, and they gave their diaries their family's diaries to the Bancroft. So you can read, you can hold in your hands, these hand lettered, some of them have watercolor paintings in them, these journals of pioneers. And I was reading particularly the ones that were done by kids. And there were a bunch done by kids because normally what's published is what's done by men. There's some that are done a lot done by women as well. But I was particularly interested in the kids perspective because that made a huge difference. And that was illuminating because if you read a man's journal or a man's diary, there's a lot of Concern and worry because he's in charge of people's safety. He wants to make sure everybody gets there safely. The women, it's a different kind of journey because they're also very attuned to what's going on socially, who's talking to who, what's going on with that family, besides caring for their kids. And for the kids, it was like, it's a holiday. There's no school. For them, there was not this sense of danger. They weren't scared. I mean, there were scary moments, but it wasn't this sense of the Oregon Trail as this horrible thing that they had to dread. It was a big adventure, and they were having a lot of fun. And that's what I wanted to capture. So that was a voice that I got from reading the kids' journals, which I wouldn't have gotten otherwise.
2: Oftentimes one of the best places to find the said voice of the characters, of course, the voices in our head. And this was the case for Marissa from her long series of books featuring Amelia, a young girl whose life is highly reminiscent of the authors.
1: When I first wrote Amelia, it looks like a kid's notebook. It basically, I wrote and drew it in a composition book because it was based on the notebook I had when I was a kid. And I got the idea when I was buying school supplies for my son and I thought like, oh wow, I did a notebook like this when I was a kid. What's gonna, maybe this could be a book. And I wrote and drew what I remembered and Amelia's what came out. And what I wanted was to be able to go back and forth between words and pictures. Because I've been doing conventional picture books which are very separate. I mean the text is separate. You write the text and then you do the art. But I think in words sometimes and I think in pictures other times. And I wanted to be able to go back and forth in my storytelling that way. And the notebook allowed me to do that. But when I sent it to publishers, i have been working with, I think, four or five different ones by then. Nobody wanted it because they thought it was just too weird. It was an odd hybrid. They said, what is this? It's not a picture book. It's not a novel. No one's gonna know where to shelve it. The librarians won't know how to catalog it. We just can't do it. And it took a, a weirdo small press in Berkeley, which had just started, Tricycle Press, which was the children's division of 10-speed. Because you know if you're big, you ride a 10-speed. If you're little, you ride a tricycle. Very clever. Um, they didn't know better. They took a chance on Amelia. And Amelia sold really, really well. I didn't know that I was going to do more of them, but there are now, I think, over 30 Amelia books. The first 10 years of Amelia, she's in elementary school. And th- for those books, I would say the readers are from second grade to sixth grade. And then they're 10 years of middle school, which is why she's finally graduating, because really 10 years of middle school is enough for anybody. Uh, and those are for older readers. Those are more for 10 to 14, 15. Although I get... I get mail from young women in college who grew up reading Amelia who still read Amelia, which is very sweet. They're reading out of nostalgia, I think, obviously. Mm-hmm. But the point of Amelia is basically to, to do a book that kids feel relates to their lives because not, Amelia's a completely ordinary kid because she's based on me. I wasn't a great athlete or you know, honor student or whatever. I was just a normal kid. Totally boring. But what's interesting about her notebook is her point of view and her sense of humor. And that's what kids relate to. Anybody can keep a notebook like Amelia. And a lot of kids start writing and drawing because Amelia makes them see it's possible. And that's what I was hoping for. So it's really, she gets in, I get inside, I should say she said, I get inside a kid's head. And she's relatable to a lot of kids. So that's knowing your age group. And when people ask, how do you know that age group so well? And I think I just have a really vivid memory of my childhood.
2: As your book or, of course, your manuscript gets all wrapped up and is ready to go to the illustrator, the process of creating the book completely changes. Marissa's got a few tips on that.
1: A lot of picture book writers think that the illustrator is there to as a kind of hand to do exactly what's in the writer's mind. And that's absolutely not the right idea. The illustrators are to interpret the text and then make something bigger and different than what the writer could picture because generally writers aren't artists. If you're an author and an illustrator, then you know how illustrators work. But if you are an author, you have to trust your illustrator. They'll they'll do something much better than you could ever imagine.
2: So hopefully Marissa has given you some good insight into taking your story, your idea, your project to that next and final step, ready to start collaborating with people, getting it in front of your illustrator friends or even just trying to find an agent and sell your book. Or maybe it's just giving you the idea that you wanna work in art and design. And as more and more art and design career opportunities arise, employers are on the hunt for the next generation of talented and skilled creative professionals. And here at Academy of Art University, you will get those work-ready skills that employers want. You can study on-site in downtown San Francisco or anywhere in the world. That's right, anywhere in the world via our online programs. Visit our website at academyart.edu creativemind creative mind. And next, we're going to talk with Julie Downing.
0: Generally speaking, what does surprise people a little bit is there's, there's very little contact with the author. So I am not contacted by the author. Um, the author has already sold the story to a publisher. And then it's really the publisher's job to match author and illustrator.
2: So again, that was Julie Downing. And Julie has been illustrating books for a very long time. She has over 50 books to date. Her career is based on illustrating two to three books a year and teaching here at the Academy. She actually teaches a class in children's book illustration. So if you're a student here or interested in that, definitely check her out. And for Julie, different from Marissa, the process of creating a children's book is very different. The author, of course, writes the book, and the illustrator creates the visuals. They do the watercolors, the digital design, maybe the mixed media design. And what could be an amazing collaboration, except it's not usually that way, as Julie explains. From one of her recent book projects, Lotus and Feather, she goes into a little bit more depth on how separate the process is.
0: That's why they're choosing the illustrator. So okay. they're kind of already determining um, you know, how, how do we want this book to be approached? You know, so who can, who can do that? You know, who can develop really wonderful characters and also does excellent backgrounds and can really bring that out? Who are we going to pick for that? So I think they've, that's part of where the whole process of choosing an illustrator comes in. And so that by the time I get the project, I think my job is to bring what I do best and you know, serve the story the best way I can. And so I'm mostly thinking about story. I'm sort of not going, will this be universal? Will this win an award? Will this sell a million copies? Because I think as an illustrator, you actually don't have a lot of control over that. And so I think what you're trying to do is really get in there and think, I just wanna create the very best visual story that I can.
2: And of course, once Julie has that manuscript, It's hers, and she is now in control.
0: I don't want illustration notes. I don't want them to divide the text up. All I want is the story. So the very first thing I do is really just read it, make notes, think about kind of what the overall point of the story is. What am I trying to get across with my art? What's the author want to say? And then I I divide the text up. And it helps me see whether I'm going to make the book a 40-page book a thirty-two page book, a forty-eight page book. I do have a little bit of flexibility with the length. Sometimes the publisher will say, eh, "No, sorry, it's a thirty-two page book." Yeah,
2: that's kind of the industry standard. Thirty-two. Yeah, it's, it's in
0: it's in groups of eight. Basically, it's yeah. how they print it. So, but thirty-two is kind of a standard. But I can expand it a little bit. So, I spend a lot of time dividing up the text and kind of laying, giving myself a framework for the illustrations. Yeah. And then the next thing I do, um, lots and lots of research, um, gathering uh, things about the environment, things about the character, costumes, um, setting, birds. And I do all sorts of different types of research. I would have loved to have gone to China for this. Mm. I wish I could have. (laughs) I just, I didn't have time to fit that in. Sometimes (laughs) it does work out Uh and I can do that, but it, it, you know, even with a six-month deadline, you have to really keep up on stuff, and the process didn't allow me to do that. But I know a lot of people that have been to China, you know, with YouTube and all of those things. Right. I watched a gazillion YouTube videos. <laughs> I watch a lot of movies that take place in China. I, of course, look on Google Images, but I kind of try and expand my my thinking beyond Google Images So I went to a crane sanctuary um, so that I could actually photograph real cranes and draw real cranes. My husband did go to China and I sent him also to a crane sanctuary. So I do that and then also just a lot of research into what people wear. So I gather all that research and then I do thumbnails. And so then I'm laying out the book in terms of small thumbnails and then I sort of work bigger and bigger and more detailed from there. And what the publisher sees, which is Probably about six weeks to two months into the process, I send them a set of full-size sketches, just black and white sketches, and we work from there.
2: So... You're determining the time, the, the place and time, and the setting, and and in this case, the weather was the weather part of the story?
0: You know, there was a um, tsunami that happened in the story, because it was loosely based on an actual event. That wasn't so much me, that was the author, and I had to kind of incorporate that in. But also think about, I mean, one of the things you have to think about is, you can't have all the art be like, sunny day, sunny day, oh, tsunami, and then... You know, so you're thinking about how you incorporate what the author tells you and then what you bring to it in terms of building this visual
2: world. Is there a sweet spot for you as far as um, the place and time, the time period?
0: You know, I was the one that decided sort of the weather. I mean, I kind of knew there's a little bit of clue from the author and what she says in the text. I use the weather in that book for an emotional uh, journey. So it starts in the winter because she can't talk, and it really was meant to end in the fall where, uh, you know, it was a much more upbeat time. So that was my decision. I actually laid out a calendar with my thumbnails, and I would say, this takes place in November. This scene is December, December, January. And then I knew that there was a part that was the Chinese New Year, so this scene has to happen in February. And actually, it kind of naturally laid out to, all, to go through a year. It actually went through a year.
2: So you really are making a film. Yeah, this, this, is it story, is. this is storyboarding. It,
0: I'm totally storyboarding like, a, like somebody who makes a film. And that's, I think, the biggest thing with being a children's book illustrator. You're not thinking about one illustration. You're actually thinking about a sequence or sequential art. And it really is like a mini movie. I knew it was based on an actual event, and I did tons of research trying to find, like, because China's a big country, so where exactly in China did this take place? Like, can I get research of, you know, where it was and where her village was so that I could at least have correct buildings? Um, And the author was a little bit unspecific. I mean, sometimes I can... Either through the publisher or directly with the author, I might write and say, "By the way, d- you know, did you set it in a specific place? Because if you didn't, then I'm going to set it in a specific sure. place."
2: Yeah, that 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 as you're saying that, I'm going. That's got to be the hardest thing to think of. It's non-specific. It's not ultra modern, but it's not ancient. Right. But it's contemporary.
0: Right. So so <laughs> what do you do? Well, I find that you know, with with doing kids' books, a lot of it is you like, narrowing your parameters. So you deciding, like, where is it going to be set? It's going to take place in a year. How old is the character? Uh, All of those kinds of things. It's all about me giving myself less options. I think it's like a puzzle. And you're trying to, like, fit all the pieces together and make them all make sense. And I do find it is a little bit about narrowing your possibilities so that you can make decisions that make sense that serve the book. And one of the things I tell my students, you know, when they start a project, and this is one of the things I do at the very beginning, I said, the very first thing you should do is read the story, read the story, read the story, and then write for yourself, what's this story about? Not necessarily like the synopsis, but really like what's the heart of the story?
2: Is the emotional beats, beats. Right. yes, yes.
0: So is it friendship? Is it, you know, and just write that on a piece of paper and stick it above your desk. And then every time you come to a decision point, you have to go back to, is what I'm doing making sense with uh, with what I decided the story is about? And so that helps you make those choices.
2: Oh, wow. That's, that's a very unique way of looking at your design and illustration yeah. process.
0: And when you talk about, you know, kids' books seem so simple, but they're not usually simple. But if you're good at it, you make it look simple. And some of it is really understanding what that story is about and having every decision you make serve what the story is
2: about. Since we're talking a lot about children's books, if you've never looked at one, it's a good idea to go to the store and look at them. Or if you've got younger brothers and sisters, a kid of your own like I do, children's books are very simple. Sometimes they're deceptively simple. Sometimes they actually look pretty terrible. If you ask a bunch of artists, sometimes those ones you think are terrible actually are. Some of them that are deceptively simple are really good. And it's kind of hard to figure that out. But here Julie's got some explanation on how to think about that and what is something that is simple.
0: Well, I'm trying to think of, you know, some examples, for instance, that I really love. Like Harold in the Purple Crayon. I don't know if you've okay. seen that. Like you look at those drawings and you think, really? Right. Like how long did that take that guy? You know, and I think, oh my God, I labor for a week over each finish. And what, did he dash that out in like five minutes? Really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think, again, when you think about it, it's not just about that final art you see in the book, but it's really about planning the whole visual story and sequence. So it's how did the page before work with the, that page work with the page after? How does the overall sequence work? What kind of character are you creating? What's the, you know, is the character um, meaningful? Do you care about the character? That all comes into it. And then I think the actual final artwork, sometimes it is really simple, And I think that comes down to individual style. I mean, trust me, there are many times I think, do I have to paint this way? I can't do something simpler. It would be so much easier and faster and more um, lucrative. Right. Uh, But I also think as artists, we we do what we do. And, um, you know, you have a certain artistic voice and that's sort of the way it comes out.
2: And to wrap it up, Julie has some good advice for first timers and students on how to really start thinking like a book illustrator.
0: You have to be kind of a natural storyteller, and so you, you do have to think in terms of how you can tell a story visually. And so, for instance, I have a lot of students that come into my class, and I mean, they are knockout, incredible draftsmen, can draw a figure, can draw a portrait. I mean, it's incredible. But sometimes when they go to, to actually tell a story, they don't know what to do because they're used to having a model in front of them, they draw the portrait, looks great, they're incredible draftsmen, but then what? So it's all about being able to bring life to your characters and really get in and tell a visual story. So I think often you don't have to be the very best draftsman in your figure drawing class. It's more about, can
1: you tell a story?
2: And if you're stuck on story or where to begin, here is some closing advice from Marissa Moss
1: there are a lot of interesting people to write about but you have to choose carefully and one of the things i look for is somebody who has real historical value someone whose story has not been told because history generally is written by the winners and it's written by mostly white men so there's a lot of there are a lot of interesting people that history's overlooked and those are the, those are the nuggets the stories i really want to get at but they've got to be more than just interesting aberrations they have to really have i think lasting value because a picture book is a book that's going to be read over and over and over again so you want the people that you're writing about to be people who really can bring something into a kid's life and in some ways to me they're all my heroes they're my heroes so I want them to be heroes for kids so they really have to be one of these bigger than life people and you know it's not hard to find those people they're actually a lot of them it's just kind of keeping your eyes and ears open and seeing that person that was extraordinary I want to write about them
2: So there you have a quick foray into the world of children's book illustration. And maybe it's not something you thought about, but after talking with these two women, I have to tell you, it does make me wanna start doing children's books because, you know, 32 illustrations seems doable when you look at all the work you have to do in school or in your day job. And of course, if you want to hear more from Julie Downing, she's got a great story in her 50-plus book career, all the things that she's learned, all the stuff she teaches, head over to anchor.fm slash creativemind and listen to the full podcast there. And please do hit subscribe as well so you never miss an episode of Creative Mind. I'm Bobby Brill, and thanks for listening.